Good afternoon, my name is Kyle, and we are continuing our series in First and Second Samuel. And today we are going to look at Saul's story, which means that I will be covering some 22 chapters of the Bible. So I would recommend that you take out your Bible, and I am going to recommend to myself that I pray for us. So let me pray. God, as we open up this large section of your word, and we consider Saul's life, We ask that you would speak to us, teach us what we need to hear, and in all things drive us to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you ever saw those VH1 series called Where Are They Now? VH1 had this series, and what they would do is they would look at these one-hit wonders, right? These folks that came up and they had this song. You know, you've, you've heard these songs before in the car. You're listening to this old 90s song that comes on. I mean, some of you, some of you were in the womb then. Others of you, you're listening to this old 90s song or 80s song, and it was so amazing. And then all of a sudden, you're like, where are they now? Well, VH1 picks up that story, and what they do is they look at where these one-hit wonders went, or these childhood superstars, right? These famous actors. And oftentimes what we see is where they are now is a pretty ordinary place, sometimes even a worse than ordinary place, a, a mediocre place. And then in some cases, we see lives that have completely spiraled out of control. And it leaves us asking the question, what, what causes someone to start so well and end so poorly? What leads to a life unraveling? Today we are considering the character of Saul. And as one commentator said, Saul is one of the most perplexing characters in all of Scripture because Saul, he... He is so enigmatic. In, in some ways, he starts so well. He, he, he's well-intentioned, even if a bit mm, naive and somewhat aloof. He seems to be repentant. And yet, Samuel gets down on him for what appears to be minor infractions over and over again. And in the end, he is rejected and his life completely unravels. What do we do with Saul? Well, here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at Saul's rise, Saul's ruin, and Saul's ramifications for us. So let me tell the story of Saul, Saul's rise. Saul was an impressive figure. He was a head taller than anyone, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. But he actually did not aspire to be king. He never wanted to be king. In fact, when Samuel, the prophet, goes to present him to Israel, he goes to present Saul. And then it's like, where's Saul? Where's he gone? And then, as we heard that was read in the story earlier, the text says in chapter 10, verse 22, quote, he has hidden himself among the baggage. You're supposed to laugh at that. My daughter laughs hysterically at that. And it's like, um. so I have a brother-in-law and he hates to be the center of attention. 
And that's why he would love me telling the story. He hates to be the center of attention. And so when he was in college one day, he came home and he opened up the refrigerator door and he saw a birthday cake. And guess what? It was his birthday. And so he did what was the only natural thing to do. He took the cake, he hid it in the dryer, and then he left the house. Because he did not want to have a party with him as the center of attention. That is Saul. Saul has this big day where he's going to be presented as the king, and he is there hiding among the baggage. So how in the world did this guy become king? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, all the elders, the leaders of the people, call a meeting together with Samuel. And they say, look, Samuel, you're getting old, like really old. And your kids are kind of corrupt, like Eli's. And so they ask in verse 6, or they insist, appoint a king for us to lead us, such as all the other nations. Uh, appoint a king for us to judge us, you could even say, translate the text. And remember, Samuel, he's a judge, and so he didn't like this very much. He was upset. Partly he was upset because God had risen up judges for them to deliver them over and over and over again. But God says, look, Samuel, don't get your feelings hurt. Don't take this personally. This isn't about you. It's actually about me. Verse 7, he says, they have not rejected you. They were, they're rejecting me as their king. Now, why did the people want a king? We don't have to guess. Later on in the chapter in verse 20, they say to Samuel, after he warns them against what a king will do and what will happen, they say, nope, we still want a king. Give us a king, verse 20, so that we may be like all the other nations and so that he might go out before us to fight our battles. Why did they want a king? For significance? We want to be like the other nations. And security. So that he might go out before us and fight our battles. Now the human heart has a tendency to seek significance and security in individual leaders and in political alliances and financial instruments rather than in God himself. And we see this play out over and over and over again in the scriptures. Every time Israel makes a political alliance with another nation to save themselves, instead of running to God, that's what they're doing. And they do it time and time again. And guess what? It didn't stop with Israel. We see it over and over and over again in the church as well. I've been reading a, a book that's made a big splash lately. It's Kristen Cobes Dumetz's Jesus and John Wayne. She's a historian and works at Calvin College, and she goes through 75 years. It's a cut-wrenching account. 75 years of evangelicals looking to strong, charismatic people to give them significance, insecurity give us a charismatic leader that we might be like the nations give us a silver tongue preacher so that we might be like the nations give us a black and white thinker who doesn't compromise on anything so we can feel secure and safe and stable in this world I and mean, when we have to come 
to the recognition that we have a celebrity problem. Not just Hollywood, the evangelical church, the Presbyterian church. We look to celebrity preachers. We look to celebrity commentaries. We have people with cult followings. In other words, we want a leader like the nations. We're a lot like Israel. Now, let me be clear. The problem was not in them asking for a king or in a king itself. God had always wanted to give Israel a king. As we heard earlier in our children's lesson, Deuteronomy 17 set out how God was preparing his people for a king. And even Hannah's song at the opening of 1 Samuel says that God is preparing his people for a king. God wanted to give his people a king, but the right sort of king. Not a king like the nations, but a king who would submit to God's will and God's ways and who would continually recognize God's ultimate authority and kingship over the people. See, here's the key theological question of the books of First and Second Samuel. Listen for it, because I think it's our question as well. How can God's people have a human king? while God still remains their great king. How can God's people have a human leader or human leaders while God still remains their great leader? The people ask for a king, which means that what they're asking for is a good for a good thing but for all the wrong reasons. Did you know that you can ask for a good thing and want a good thing, but for the wrong reasons? And what does God do with their request? How does God answer them? He gives them what they want. He gives them soul. In verse 22, he says to Samuel, appoint for them a king. You know, sometimes God's discipline is actually looks like giving us what we want. Sometimes God's discipline actually looks like giving us that successful career that we crave. Sometimes God's discipline actually looks like us giving us that that spouse that's not right for us and doesn't share our faith. Sometimes God's discipline actually looks like giving us a strong, charismatic, domineering leader. Sometimes God's discipline looks a lot like Saul. In chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul to be king. And when he does so, he gives uh, gives Saul three signs and two instructions. The three signs are to let Saul know, hey, you can trust this word. And the two instructions are to test Saul. So you have to understand that Saul is not king yet. An anointed king is not king. They're the king designate. Uh, You could say the king elect if it was a democracy. For a year, Saul was not king. He had to be tested. And here's the test. We find it in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. First, it says that after these signs have been performed, Saul should do whatever his hand finds to do. 
Now that may sound ambiguous, but we know from the larger context that where he receives these signs is in a place where there is a Philistine garrison. There is an outpost of Philistine, and they are camped out on the hill of the God, the hill of the Lord. And so it's clear that what Saul's hand finds to do there in my mind is he's supposed to get rid of this outpost. The second thing, after he gets rid of this outpost, he's supposed to go down to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel so that Samuel can bring him further instructions. In other words, here's what Saul is supposed to do. Take initiative. Hear the calling of God. And then go and show patience. And Saul fails. He doesn't do anything with the Philistine garrison. And he doesn't wait to listen to Samuel. But in chapter 11, Saul rebounds. He goes out to battle against the Ammonites. And he has such a huge victory there that he garners the people's support and is able to be crowned king by the end of chapter 12. And his kingship, which lasted two years, technically, was very impressive. If you were looking at it from the surface, he was incredibly successful. In fact, chapter 14, verses 40, verse 47, says that he routed all Israel's enemies on every side. All on every side. I mean, he was taking names. He was defending God's people. Yet there are some troubling signs just below the surface, two in particular. The first is this. When we go back to chapter 13, we realize that while, while the Philistines were conquered, it was actually Saul's son, Jonathan, and not Saul, who took the initiative in conquering them. See, Saul has yet to learn to take the initiative and heed God's call. The second thing, the second troubling sign is that Saul does not prioritize hearing from God's word. In chapter 13, he's insensitive to it. In chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, Samuel has to, uh, 11 through 12, or 14 rather, Samuel has to chastise Saul for failing to wait on him to receive the word. And then in chapter 14, verse 36, Saul must be urged by the priest to seek after God. And he built an altar there, and that's the first time he had built an altar to God and sought God in this whole year. You see, these two troubling signs are the same things that we saw in his test, that he failed. And he has not learned yet, and this will lead to his ruin. Which brings us to Saul's ruin. Saul's ruin begins in chapter 15. Samuel tells Saul to go out to battle against the Amalekites. And when he goes out to battle against the Amalekites, he is supposed to put under the ban. That's a technical phrase, which means to sacrifice, devote to the Lord everything concerning the Amalekites. All their people, all their livestock, everything. He's supposed to put under the ban as a sacrifice to God. And he goes out and he fights the Amalekites and he wins and he builds a monument uh, because of how big this victory was. And then, though, in chapter 15, verse 9, we find 
Even though he wins, nevertheless, he saves the king and the best animals. Samuel hears about it. He's very upset. He cries all night to the Lord. And then he walks up and there's this very important confrontation between Samuel and Saul that I'll summarize for you. But it's in chapter 15, verses 13 through 31. Samuel walks up. Saul sees him and Saul comes and he greets him like everything's great. And he says, greeting, Samuel, I performed the command of the Lord. And you know what? I think Saul really thought he did. And then Samuel kind of sarcastically says, oh, yeah, then why do I hear these sheep? You know, those ones that you didn't sacrifice that you were supposed to put under the ban. And then Saul starts making all these excuses about why he hadn't sacrificed the sheep yet and and how he had this better idea. And after he's done with his excuses, eventually Samuel just interrupts him and he's like, stop. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has now rejected you. And Saul's like, no, no, no. Uh, he's, he's remorseful. He starts begging. He cries out for mercy. He says, I sinned. I sinned against God. And then he grabs, in this moment of desperation, he grabs Samuel's robe, and the robe rips And Samuel turns to him and he says, and the Lord has ripped the kingdom out from under you today. Now that sounds harsh. Because at that moment, Samuel was no longer a legitimate king. He had been deposed by God. It sounds harsh. I mean, these seem like minor infractions. I mean, and he's remorseful. But here's the question. Why is Saul remorseful? Chapter 15, verse 30. We get an indication into why. Saul says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. I have sinned. Restore me. Honor me. Honor me. Before the leaders of my people. See, why was Saul remorseful? Saul was remorseful because his glory, his sense of significance was being ripped away from him. See, Saul might not have wanted the kingship. He might not have wanted to be in a position of leadership But now he loved the honor and the significance that came from it. And he couldn't do it without it. And it's that love. It's that love that will lead to his ruin. Because it's that love which which is why he, he can't accept Samuel's words. And he refuses to get off the throne. I mean, who is Saul if he's not king? And who is he without the honor and glory of the people? I mean, who is he? He had come to see his identity as this. And it's that love that causes him to be unable to accept David's anointing. David is anointed in chapter 16. At first, Saul and David have a friendly relationship at first. Until 
until people start praising David more than they're praising Saul. The paradigmatic story example of this is in chapter 18. David comes back from a war that Saul sends him on. See, Saul is still not taking initiative and responsibility. And as David's returning, there are these women in the street and they're dancing and they start singing. Saul has slain his thousands and it was true. Maybe his units. And David has slain his ten thousands. There's tens of units. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul, it says, the text says, became angry and then says, what more can he have but the kingdom? See, at that moment, Saul knew that David was a threat to his honor, to his glory, to his precious. You've seen Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, right? When he's holding the ring and it's his precious. The throne is Saul's precious. And so from that point forward, he seeks and hunts after David. The penultimate low point is in chapter 22 when he slaughters an entire village of priests because they showed hospitality to David. And then, of course, the low point is at the end of his life in chapter 31 when he realizes that he cannot beat David, though he's chased him so much. And so he asks his assistant to run him through with the sword and his assistant wouldn't do it. And so he falls on his own sword. Now, suicide is not a very often thing that happens in the Bible. We have Saul, we have Judas. And there's a tragic ending. Saul. What do we do with Saul? Well, that leads me to the ramifications. Saul's ramifications for us. And while there's a lot that I could draw from in this story, I just want to bring out quickly five principles for us this afternoon. The first principle that I think we see here is that the leaders that we often want are not the leaders that we need. You know, the people wanted a leader who was big and strong. And trust me, Saul would have gotten all the Valentines on Valentine's Day in high school. He was a head taller than everyone else, and there was no one like him. He was a physical specimen. He was the strong man, and he was a military technician. When, when he actually did go to war, he crushed people. In that sense, he was a good leader. And he was a charismatic leader. And yet, what the people needed was a king who was more sensitive about God's call than they were sensitive about their own ego and position. You see, Saul loves the recognition. He grows, while he did not want the position, he grows to love the recognition that comes from it. And he loves the recognition of being in a position of leadership, but he does not like the responsibility. That's why David has to fight Goliath. That's why Saul, uh, his son Jonathan has to defeat the Philistines. See, Saul refuses to take initiative. Saul refuses to take responsibility. 
And this is what sets apart good leaders from bad ones amongst God's people. See, when we seek leaders for ourselves, this is, I mean, this is a hard text to preach. This is a hard text to study for me as I'm going through this because it makes you ask a lot of questions about yourself. It's soul searching. But here's the question that we have to all ask ourselves as we're choosing leaders and leaders among us, we have to ask ourselves personally, and it's this. Do we want leaders and do we have leaders who are more interested in protecting God's people than in their position? Are they willing to give up their position even to protect God's people? Because Saul was not. He did not do what Eli did. He doesn't say if the Lord says it, it's good. See, one of the things that disqualifies one from leadership is a firm grasp on leadership. If you can't let go, then you can't be a leader. We need in the church to look for leaders who are sensitive to God's word, God's spirit, who take initiative and who are unconcerned with the position and prestige and honor and praise that might come from it. Second thing that we see in this text is that moral life is often much more complex than we care to admit. In their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt uh, address what they think are untruths or lies or destructive ideas that are affecting the college campus. And one of those that they mention is that life, the idea is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. Now, whether or not uh, Haidt and Lukanoff are correct about the college campus, I do think that they are onto something about human anthropology, and that is this. We love a spaghetti western. White hats and black hats, good people and bad people. And we want to say, David good, Saul bad. Where are the good guys and where are the bad guys? But here's the thing, as you read this book, it's very difficult to do that. I mean, as Homer Simpson said when he read the Bible, that famous theologian, everybody in here is a mess. Except for that one guy. That's right. Everybody in here is a mess. A mess of a sinner except for that one guy. And so, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he, he's a victim of the people in a lot of ways, isn't he? I mean, he never wanted to be in this position. He didn't want to be into leadership. And it was their desire of this kind of thing that thrust him into the limelight. And... His whole life was still bound up and determined with the people. Because when Samuel goes and he warns them about what's going to happen before Samuel dies, in chapter 12, and before Saul becomes king, he says this in chapter 12, verse 25, to the people, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. He's not talking to Saul. He's talking to the people. You will be swept away, you and your own king. See, in a lot of ways, Saul's destiny was bound up with the destiny of the people. And he's kind of a victim in this. 
And yet he's still responsible. Today, there are two tendencies that I see out there, two schools on moral responsibility. One says this, well, humans are independent, autonomous agents that have free will, and because of that, uh, they must be held responsible for their actions. Others, on the other side, tend to say, no, we are bound up in systems and structures and cultures and families that are larger than us, and those things all influence our wills, and because they influence our wills, we are victims and we are not responsible. And the Bible says, no, it's both and. The Bible says it's both and. The Bible says, on the one hand, yes, Saul is actually, uh, uh, he is absolutely, his destiny and his life is absolutely influenced in a lot of ways determined by the people and the community that he is in. And at the same time, at the very same time, it holds him responsible for his actions and attitudes. And you say, how, does it, how can it do that? The only way you can say that is if you have stepped into a Western Enlightenment framework. Step out of it. It's, I'm serious. This is serious. Because I hear it all the time. Don't let modern definitions of responsibility frame the way you read the Bible. Let the Bible frame the way you understand responsibility. Our wills are determined by lots of forces. And we are absolutely responsible. And this leads to two implications. First, it should lead us to be empathetic with sinners. Because we realize there are bigger forces at work in their life. And yet, second, it also, it also causes us to not overlook sin and it makes us unwilling to downplay sin. And by the way, that's exactly what the cross is about. God empathetically identifying with us in our sin and yet unwilling to downplay it in any way, shape or form. That's why there are multiple metaphors for the cross, like penal substitution that deals with our responsibility. And Christus Victor, which deals with the fact that we are victims of larger powers and that we are all enslaved to this thing called sin. And we have to have both in, or you will never be able to understand this book. That's the second thing. Because you can't read this and say, it's very difficult to read this book story and say David good, Saul bad. I mean, in lots of ways, David commits sins that are way more heinous than Saul. And so we must ask, why is David accepted? This is this is confused commentators for centuries. Why is David accepted and Saul rejected? Because they are a mix of ruin and glory. Well, that leads us to the third thing this book teaches us, and that's the difference between true and false repentance. Why is David accepted and Saul rejected? And simply this, because while David takes responsibility and, and repents of his sinful idols, listen to this, because this is subtle. Saul repents, but he repents for his sinful idols. David repents of his sinful idols. Saul repents for his sinful idols. In other words, 
Why does Saul repent? He's still serving another God, the God of glory. When we repent, why do we repent? If we're remorseful, why are we remorseful? Is it so that we can remain, have a good name, not have the consequences of sin so heavy upon us? Or are we actually turning from the idols of our heart to the true and living God? Third thing that this story teaches us that we learn from Saul is that the sins that ruin start small. You know, if you're reading through, a lot of commentators say, why is Samuel berating Saul? I mean, all he did was maybe he was supposed to get that Philistine garrison, but he... But I mean, I mean, you know, that he just wasn't that sensitive to the responsibility. It wasn't like God made it clear and direct. And then, and then, yeah, he got a little creative when Samuel took longer than seven days to get there. I mean, what was he supposed to do? What's the big deal, we said. And that's what Saul thought. What's the big deal? But listen, that's how it always starts. What's the big deal? It starts in not being sensitive to God's call. It starts in not taking the initiative. But the big deal is that the sins that start small, the habits and tendencies that start small, they lead to big ruin. You know, it's the same things that we saw in the test early on that plagued Paul, uh, Saul throughout his life. You know, that, that affair, it doesn't start the night you decide to take your ring off and go down to the hotel bar. It started weeks, months, years before when you entertained certain thoughts because they were no big deal. That embezzlement, that didn't start when the check hit your bank account. No, it started weeks, years, months, decades maybe before when you started nursing a sense of envy and that you deserve more. And you started making money and wealth and comfort your ultimate goal. You know, like the matches and the fires that, that, that set our hills ablaze during drought season, they don't start big, they start small. They lead to a lot of ruin. John Owen, the Puritan writer, said, Be killing sin. Or sin will be killing you. In the book of the Song, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, we read, Catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. Catch the little foxes, because little foxes, given time, can ruin a life. Which brings me to the last thing. Idols are deadly. As one commentator said after Saul kills the priest at Nob, he says, the hard truth is that Saul has become an evil man. He was not inherently so or destined to be so. He's not devoid of qualities even now that, uh, that arouse our sympathy. But he has become evil in his obsessive desire to maintain his hold on power. See, it's love of power that takes and takes and takes from Saul. It takes his family his daughter and his son are no longer 
in a good relationship with it. It takes, it takes his armies. It takes his throne. And eventually it will take his own life. And that's what idols always do. Anytime you look for some, to something to be and to do for you what God can only be and do for you, it will promise big, but it will take and take and take and take until your life is ruined or until you die. But there is another way. Did you know that? There's another way. Saul's way is not the only way. See, centuries later, there was another Benjamite named Saul, named after probably this first king. And he had an idol. His idol was religious purity. His idol was keeping the standard of Torah to the utmost degree. His idol was his history and his heritage and his family and his nation. That he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he spoke Hebrew, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This was his idol. And that idol led him when he thought he was pursuing God to go and try to kill Christians, people who were following a crucified Messiah, anointed one. Until one day, Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, was confronted by a leader, an anointed one, a king. A king who did not use his position to take and take and take and take, but who gave up his position to give and give and give and give. And there the Apostle Paul learned of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And at that point, Paul's Paul's identity completely changed. You see, before he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a Benjamite, he was a religious fanatic. But after that day, if you ask Paul, who are you? He would say, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm a recipient of a gift, the greatest gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. And I count all that other stuff as loss in comparison with this gift and this king who gives and gives and gives and gives. Do you know him? Do you know him? The king who gives his life for sinners like you and me. I hope you do. Let's pray as we come to meet him here at this table. And God, we ask that you would Impress your word upon our hearts and show us how good and how beautiful you are as the great king, the king of kings, who renounces position and prestige, all to become lowly and to serve and to give for us and to lift us up out of the pit. Would you melt our hearts so that we desire you? above all the other gods of this world. Amen.